As I mentioned just a moment ago, there were two trials. And these things happened after Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to fast forward through the Garden of Gethsemane. As I said, I wasn't going to preach specifically on it because I've done that before at this place several times. But you remember that Jesus identified the betrayer, Judas. Jesus told his disciples, he said, all of you will be offended because of me this night. And Peter says, no, I don't care what they do. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And Jesus says, tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the disciples slept as Jesus prayed. And finally, Jesus said to his father, if there's no other way except I drink it, he said, thy will be done. And looking out and seeing the, the multitude that was coming his way, the Bible says that Jesus led his disciples and they went out. Then the betrayal kiss of Judas, and then they arrested Jesus. Well, there was a religious trial that took place, and then there was the civil trial. What I'm doing now is I'm fast-forwarding through the religious trial, and we're going to pick it up at the civil trial when Jesus is before Pilate. Now, he's found guilty of absolutely nothing. In fact, when they brought Jesus to him, he says, what has he done? What is the accusation? You know what they said? I think it's interesting. They said, basically, do you think that we would have brought him to you if he wasn't such a bad guy or he wasn't an evildoer? In other words, they're saying to Pilate, you're stepping on our integrity. Of course there's something wrong with Jesus. Of course he's guilty of something, or we would have never brought him to you. But did you get the point? Did you see the point? There was nothing, there was no accusation at all at that time when he's first brought to Pilate. Well, Pilate realizes as he looks upon Jesus, he's got a real problem. He looks at his demeanor. He looks at his humble attire, and he realizes we have a problem. As Pilate would say, not once, not twice, not five times, but six times, during the course of this period of time, Pilate says, I find no fault in him. But his problem is he can't give him back. There'll be a riot if he did such. What's he going to do? So he gets an idea. I got it. Herod's in town. And by the way, Herod is from Galilee. Jesus was originally from Galilee. Who is Herod? Really, as I use today's common vernacular, maybe Pilate was thinking, you know, Herod's the big, Herod's the big cheese over there in Galilee. We'll send him to Herod. But they beat him a little and looked him over a little and sent him back. And now he's Pilate's problem again. You know, I think that there is a, a spiritual, uh, I think there's a spiritual parallel here. And I think it's really true of every person. And that is this, Pilate tried really hard to not have to make the decision about what am I going to do with Jesus. But he couldn't. And I think that's a picture of every person today. You cannot remove your choice, the freedom of choice. Am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to be a Christian or am I going to be in sin? I have to make a choice in my life. You have to make a choice in your life. And Pilate had to make a choice in his life too. He had to choose. Am I going to choose Jesus and do the right thing or not? 
Well, I want to notice three things, three proposals that Pilate actually came up with. Because really, these were failing proposals because after all, he wanted to get rid of Jesus. He knew he was innocent and here they come. Proposal number one, he says, I got an idea. He says, why don't you take him and why don't you judge him for yourself? You know what they said? Oh, no, Pilate, it's unlawful for us to do that. Do you know why? You know this. I've taught, I've taught this before. In AD 30, the law changed. It was called Pax Romana, and that literally means Roman peace. What that means is Rome was the only one that had the power of the sword, meaning Rome was the only one that could execute someone, and they knew it. That began in AD 30. It's now A.D. 33. If the Jews would have taken Jesus and put him to death because he said, I am the son of God, which later they're going to say, we have a law that you have to die if you say that. If they would have done it their way, they would have stoned Jesus to death. And if that was the case, the Bible is not true. Remember what Jesus said of himself? He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all peoples unto me. He's talking about the way he would die. He's talking about being on a cross. In the Old Testament, you know what it says? It says he would hang on a tree. So they said this, no, Pilate, we can't do that. It's unlawful for me, for us to do that. What else does he say then? Well, then he says this. He says, we have a custom, or you have a custom, that during the period of the Passover, somebody would be released. So he gets an idea. And he says, Surely they'll release the king of the Jews. I honestly think as we pause here, I honestly think that Pilate thought this was going to work. I honestly thought that when he brings out Barabbas and Barabbas is standing there and Jesus is standing there and Jewish custom was release one prisoner at Passover time. I honestly think he thought that would work. But here they stand. Now, why would he think that? Do you remember a few days ago, and do you remember why I told you that I wanted to write this sermon, this series? I wanted to notice what happened between Sunday when they said, Hosanna to the highest, until this day, and they said, crucify him. What happened in between? Well, we talked about that. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He preached things that were very difficult to hear, and all the things that Jesus did. So no doubt he angered people. I get that. But there's more. First of all, he's standing there and he's standing next to Barabbas. And just maybe, though, Pilate in his mind is thinking, maybe there are some people out here that when he came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, maybe they were the ones that said Hosanna to the highest. And by the way, you remember why he was on a donkey? This all fits. Stay with me. All fits. I promise. Do you know why he was on a donkey? He was on a donkey for a good reason. And a number of months ago when I started this series, I told you that I had always thought that the reason that he was on the back of a colt of a donkey and not a horse is to show that his kingdom was not of this world. Now that's true, but that's not why. I've even said that maybe it was part of his humiliation. He would come on the back of a colt of a donkey. That's not why. He rode in on the back of a colt of a donkey because that's what kings did when kings came in peace. 
In fact, when a king would lead troops into battle, you know what they rode? They rode a horse. When they went in peace, they rode a donkey. What is Jesus? The prince of peace. What is the kingdom? The kingdom of peace. They said Hosanna, but they didn't really know what they were saying. Stay with me now. All of a sudden, Barabbas is there. Barabbas is representative of the kind of man that Jesus spoke of in the parable of the Good Samaritan when the man fell among thieves. He said there was a man like that, a robber. There was a man that was a bandit. There was a man that was a highway man. And Jesus describes such a man in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Incidentally, he's now standing next to that kind of a man. Now, can't you just figure this, that Pilate's thinking, surely they'll pick Jesus. But the Bible says that the chief priests and the elders of the people, they stirred them up. And then they all said, Barabbas. You know, I've often wondered. I saw a little depiction. I saw a little show one time on TV, a movie. And it was on something about the crucifixion. And those precious women that would be there at the end, that would be there at the sepulcher when the stone was rolled away, they would be eyewitness testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. And in this movie, it showed them, they were standing there, and when the chief priests and elders were rallying up the people, and they were screaming for Barabbas to be released, it just showed these women by themselves, and they were yelling out, Jesus I just wonder how many people cried for Jesus. How many people chose Jesus? Wasn't there anybody? Was he all alone? Remember this too. Remember when I said it's all going to fit about the donkey? It's going to fit. Okay? It's going to fit. When you look up the word Hosanna, okay? It will say praise and adoration. It'll say a word of honor. That's what it'll say. You can Google it. Don't do it now. But later on, get your phone out, not now, and Google that. It'll tell you something like that. It'll say something along the lines of uh, praise and adoration. Okay? But did you know that Hosanna is the Greek form of the Hebrew plea to God for help? In fact, in the Hebrew, you know what it's called? Hoshia na. What were they actually saying when they said Hosanna? Were they praising him? No. What they were saying when they said Hosanna, they were saying Hoshia na. And Hoshia na literally means, get this, save now we pray or give victory. Don't you see? When Jesus came in on the back of a colt of a donkey, there was great support there because they believed that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom. And just maybe it would lift the thumb of, of oppression of Rome off of them. Well, guess what? A week's gone by and they know the difference. And they say, crucify him. One little side note here before we go further. You know, I think that this is a picture sometimes of people today. When it's Hosanna Day, it's three cheers for Jesus. But later on, it's crucify him. It's kind of like people in the religious world today, don't you think? 
On the 25th of December, it's three cheers for Jesus. And then the rest of the year, it's whatever. Or on Easter Sunday, I can't tell you the number of times I have gone and held a gospel meeting that happened to close on Easter Sunday. And I'm telling you, that place is packed with bonnets and hats and rabbits and eggs and candy and people coming to visit. Visitors, right? Three cheers for Jesus on that day. What about the child of God? What about the Christian? Sunday morning, three cheers for Jesus. The rest of the week, though, whatever I want. Forget about him. Let's not be like that. Let's not do that. So all of a sudden, here we go. Remember this. He says, you take him and judge him among yourself. They said, nope, it's unlawful. I will release the king of the Jews. Surely you want him. They said, nope, Barabbas, what else? This is what he said. I don't understand this at all. He knows he's innocent. So he says, I'll just do this. I'll just beat him and scourge him. That's what I'll do instead. And you know what's interesting is, if he knew that he was innocent, why in the world did he scourge him? Maybe he thought, I'll just pacify the people. Now, over the years, especially my family has heard me say this. Maybe you have heard me say this too. But have you ever heard me talk about the scourging and I, and I will, and I will phrase, I'll use the phrase, they took that cat of nine tails and thrust it across his back? Maybe you've heard me say that. This was not a cat of nine tails. I've been wrong for years. Let me tell you what a cat of nine tails was. A cat of nine tails was a handle that was wrapped in leather. It had nine straps that hung off of that. In the tip of each strap was a razor blade. So what they would do is, when they used a cat of nine tails, they would use that and thrust it on the back of someone, and it was extremely painful, but it was different than a scourge. Stay with me. The razor blades would cut the skin as a razor blade might that you might think. I'm going to talk about something that's worse. I'm going to talk about a Roman scourge or a flagrum. That's how Jesus was beaten. And this is what it was. It was a thick stick wrapped with leather. At the end of it were thongs, leather thongs of some length. And at the end of those thongs were held bits of brass and lead and bone, and they were filed to sharp points. The victim was then either stretched flat on the ground with his back up or tied to a post hanging or strapped suspended from the ground. The soldier would thrust the scourge across the back of the victim, tearing the flesh from his back. It probably looks something, they say, like this right here. And do you notice here, these are lead balls here which give it weight. In other words, it wasn't just leather straps with uh, razor blades on the end. That would have been bad enough. But this was designed, as they thrust it and pulled it back, it would rip and tear the flesh from the body. And make no mistake about it, by the way. Get 39 out of your head. Get the number 39 out of your head. I know a preacher one time that, for effect, stood at the pulpit and he went like this. 39 times. And he waited patiently until he hit it 39 times. He said, that's how many times. The Lord was hit. Nope. No, sir. Rome didn't have that law. 
The children of Israel could not. They could not go beyond 40. So what they do? They kept it to 39 to make sure they didn't go over. Okay? That's corporal punishment. Physical punishment under the old law. This is different. This was a scourging. This is with a flagrum. This is terrible. And Rome didn't have such a law. What I believe with all of my heart is they beat Jesus almost to death. He was unrecognizable. No doubt. Then they suspended him up on some sort of a pole. And I wanted to show you this too for this reason, just for the pole. Sometimes people have different depictions of Jesus laying down or humped over, hunched over. In my research about this, it is pretty much understood or believed that it was something like this because this was, there was no mercy there. You're hanging and there's absolutely no relief at all. You can't hunker down. You can't lay down. You can't roll over. You just take it all. That's what Jesus did for us. But then there's more. Then the Bible says they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Now, interestingly about this, every time that you see a picture or a depiction of the crown of thorns, it looks like that. Okay, And I got to say in advance, I wasn't there. I don't know, but let me just tell you some things that I have read. What I have read is it probably was not or could have not been exactly like this, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the crown of thorns, can you imagine the hands of the person that had to weave all of that together? You would tear their hands apart. But in our mind, we have the depiction, well, it's got to be a crown, so a crown is round. We'll make it in the shape of a crown, and we'll show a picture of thorns coming out. Okay? It is said, I read, that probably Jesus didn't have a crown of thorns. He had a helmet of thorns. It would have looked like this. And this would hurt worse because inside would have been all of those, uh, all of those thorns pressing on the top of his head too. Historians said typically that's kind of what they had because it was easier to make. Not because it was any kind of relief at all. Now picture this. They put a purple robe on him. Now picture he is scourged. He is bloody. He is beaten almost unrecognizably. They take a crown of thorns or a helmet of thorns or whatever it looked like and they pressed it down hard on his head. Then they put on a purple robe and they mocked him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Interestingly about that, it was a Roman custom. In fact, it was a Roman game. And what they would do is, the Romans would do this. They would get someone that was less fortunate mentally. They would get someone that was, as one historian put it, like an imbecile. And they would take that person and they would make fun of him. They would bow before him. They would take him, put a purple robe on him, elevate him, and treat him like he's a king, making fun of him. That was a Roman game. Let me tell you how farther they took it with Jesus, though. With Jesus, they took this Roman game, and they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they put the purple robe on him, and they're having all their fun. And the Bible says, and I just read to you, they hit him with their hands. Do you know what it says in the Greek text? It says this. 
And they kept on saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept giving him blows with their hands. You know, in other words, what that means? They continued to punch him in the face. Now he's beaten. That's what they did to the Lamb of God. That's what they did to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So then we get to this passage here. Pilate says, we did all this. We did all this that you may know that I find no fault in him. Surely this will be enough. Surely this will suffice. And finally, Pilate said to them, behold the man. Does he really look like a dangerous king? Behold the man. Surely this will be enough. Does he really look like a king? But verse 6 says, Therefore the chief priests and officers saw him. They cried out. And they said, Crucify him, crucify him. Again, another failed proposal. Finally, Pilate says, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. By the way, that's the fifth time that Pilate said that. But notice, they said, No, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. They said, We have a law, though. We got a law. That if somebody says that he is the son of God, we have a law among us that he has to die. Okay, now let's just notice some of the, in summary of all the proposals of everything that happened, this is what they accused Jesus of. Watch. They said he threatened to destroy the temple. Wasn't true. That didn't work. They said he was an evildoer. That didn't work. Wasn't true. They said he tried to pervert the nation. That wasn't true. That didn't work. They said he forbade paying taxes to Caesar. Jesus already said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. And that wasn't true. They said, oh, wait a minute. He's stirring up the people. Still had no weight. They said he's a political revolutionary. That didn't work either. But finally, finally, they said he makes himself to be the son of God. Now we got a problem. You know what they were saying? They were saying this. He's a false god, and we don't like false gods, Pilate. Now he's got Pilate's attention. Now he's got his attention. And by the way, did you know that Rome, Romans were very superstitious people? And did you know that they actually believed that gods, small g, small g, that gods literally came down to earth and dwelt among people. Remember Acts 14? You remember what they said about Paul and Barnabas? They called them Jupiter and Mercury. Remember? Also, they did it again to Paul in Acts 28. My point is, they actually believed that gods came down and gods actually dwelt among people. They believed that. And can you imagine what Pilate's thinking now? Pilate's thinking, wait a minute, I may have just scourged the Son of God. So, notice... Here's his fatal panic. Pilate's fatal panic. In fact, the Bible says in, cha in chapter nine, John 19 and verse 8, Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. You know what that word, those two words, more afraid, actually mean in the original? He went into a frenzied panic. Now, can you imagine how he must have felt? I may have just beaten the Son of God. And so he has to go back and talk to Jesus again. And he goes to Pilate's praetorium. Now, Sister Gail's been there. 
Now, I don't know if this is the actual place. I read that it was. This was actually the what is remaining of Pilate's Hall or Pilate's Praetorium. Is that true? I have no idea. I'm just putting it up there just to show. He went to a place obviously like that. Went to Pilate's Hall. That's where Jesus was. Pilate went back in there and he talked to Jesus again. And he wants to know this. He wants to know, where are you from? He wasn't asking him, what's your address over there in Nazareth? He wants to know if you are the son of God, where'd you come from? Did you come from the place where the gods come from? That's what he wants to know. He wants to know where you're from. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says he said nothing. Why did he say nothing? Two reasons. One's obvious. One reason is Isaiah 53 and 7, as a sheep before her shear is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. That's reason number one, obviously, and that's significant, right? We get that. But isn't there something else here, too? He knew Pilate's heart. He had already told Pilate, I'm a king, not of this world. It meant nothing to Pilate. I'm a king, not of this world. He's nothing. Here's complete rejection. And I just wonder, does there come a period of time in life when the Lord finally is silent? I think in a figurative way, yes. All of a sudden, here was Pilate standing there. He had rejected who Jesus was. Do you remember what uh, John 18 and 37, Jesus said, everyone who is of truth hears my voice. Now, in chapter, in verse 10, in verse 10, he says, where are you from? And then he says, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or the power to release you? What else? The next verse. Jesus says you would have no power at all unless it had been given you from above. Now, also he says this. He said, therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And I'm going to get back to the point that I was making just a minute ago. I had to get this part out. Notice. Okay? He's in a frenzied panic. Where are you from, Jesus? Pilate wants Jesus to know I got this power. He said, you wouldn't have the power unless my father gave it to you. And then he said this, the one that delivered me to you has the greater sin. Who is that? Judas? No. It's Caiaphas. It's the religious leaders. It's the ones that arrested Jesus. It's the ones that tried to try Jesus with nothing wrong. They didn't have the legal right to do it. They didn't have the moral right to do it. And they didn't have the spiritual right to do it. There was nothing wrong with Jesus. You know what he said? The ones that delivered me to you have the greater sin. Now, do you think for a minute... Do you think that a person could ever be that guilty? Yes. Yes. As guilty as the ones that scream for the blood of Jesus. That's somebody that knows the truth and rejects it. According to Hebrews 6, he's guilty of crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting him to an open shame. And that's exactly what happens when men reject Jesus, reject the truth. And may I say this too? There's a good example here. Does there come a point in time in somebody's life when the Lord becomes silent? Yes. Let me give you an example. Do you remember when Judas, 
who was at the left of Jesus and John's to the right of Jesus and they're in that upper room and Judas is in a position of honor and he dips the bread and he gives it to him like you would a guest of honor and then all of a sudden Jesus says you're going to betray me and then finally Jesus says whatsoever thou doest do it quickly and then what does the Bible say? The Bible says Satan entered Judas. You know what that means? That's not demonic possession. That means he was totally controlling his choices and actions. The Lord had no more voice. Folks, that's why it's so important that we never drift. Because you know what happens when you drift? At some point in time, you stop listening to the Lord and the voice is no longer there in time. And you know what happens too, folks? Sometimes people drift so far, they forget where they came from and they don't know how to get back. I'm going to tell you a little story. Something happened to me. I don't even think I told my, I don't even think I told Tina. Maybe I did. But I just held a meeting in Arlington, Texas. And, and, and it just hit me when this happened. This point hit me. And I decided to go for a run. Beautiful, crisp morning. Got my sweats on. Got a hoodie on. Man, it felt great. It was great weather. My back wasn't hurting. And hey, it's a good day. And I just took off and I started running. And man, I ran and 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 ran. I did not put in the address of where I started from. I just kept running. I felt fantastic. All I was doing is looking at the scenery, all the new stuff. I'm running, having a great time, right? After an hour and a half, man, I've been running a long time. Hour and a half. I was lost. I didn't know how to get back. That was an embarrassing phone call. Cullen Smith said, man, there's a sermon in there. So I decided, I said, yeah, that'll preach. I decided to say it first so that he has to steal it from me. Okay. But I'm going to tell you that's really kind of what happens with sin. Sometimes you drift so far that you forget where you came from. And you forget how to get back. And that is why we have to have influence on those that drift. That's why. That's why. So just maybe we can be the light to help them see their way back out of darkness. Maybe to help them. Here's the address. This is where you started. This is the address to get back. Here's the GPS. So, in chapter, in verse 12... Finally, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Now, you remember what they said, though. They said, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Jew says, wait, Pilate. If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So he had to choose between his neck and his soul. That's what he had to do. So now we have finally Pilate's final pronouncement. And it's found in John 19, Verses 13 to 16. And here it is. First of all, in the praetorium, Pilate takes his judgment seat. Takes a seat. And he says, behold your king. You know what they said? Really? We have no king but Caesar. They hated Caesar. 
They said Hosanna to the highest because they thought they were finally going to be out from under the thumb of Rome. He said, behold your king. Then he says, well, shall I crucify your king? That's the title of our lesson. Shall I crucify your king? You know what they said is really sad. They said, crucify him. And then they said, and be careful what you wish for. They said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Oh, let that sink in. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Finally, his final pronouncement. And by the way, Pilate no doubt is remembering what his wife said. We don't talk about her very much. Remember the dream she had? Have nothing to do with this man, she said. And here it is. He's a raving maniac at this point in time. And he finally gives in to the people and delivered him to them to be crucified. What is all this saying? What this is saying is everybody has a choice. If we have a personal, private application of this in your life, you have a choice too. Everybody has a choice. Life is about choices. Everybody has a choice. And if you look at Jesus and Barabbas, what does that represent? A Christian life, which, by the way, is the best life. It really is. Or Barabbas, the picture of sin, a sinful life. Everybody has a choice. Sin is ugly. It's as ugly as Barabbas was and as beautiful as Jesus is to the good. Everybody has a choice. But you have to make the choice when you feel the invitation. Don't let it grow cold. Don't drift so far that the Lord is finally silent like he was to Pilate so long ago. What's coming after this? This is all that's left. In conclusion, this is all that's left. He is delivered to be crucified. We know what happens. He has to carry his cross at least for a while to fulfill prophecy. He's got to do it, so he does. But at some point in time, he succumbs to the exhaustion and the pain and all of that. And he can no longer bear his cross. So another was compelled, Simon by name. The Cyrenian came and helped. He was on to this place right here. On to Golgotha. Now why was it called Golgotha? Why do we say things like, why do we say Golgotha's brow? And why do we say Mount Calvary? Well, this is why. In Aramaic, the word Golgotha means skull. Okay? It's also called, that place, it's called Calvary. Now, that comes from this. The Latin word calva, which calva means bald head or skull. Okay? Now, it, there is a skull-shaped hill in Jerusalem. And you know what it looks like? My mother-in-law saw this. It looks like that. That is Golgotha. And you can see it looks like eyes and a mouth. It looks like a skull. So where did Jesus go? He went to Golgotha. He went to Mount Calvary. He went up there to be crucified and died for the sins of the world. And what else? He was buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, I wanted to show you this because I don't know if this is true or not. I don't think we can know, but I wanted to make a point, though. One point I do know, okay? First of all, this is also known as the garden tomb, and you could actually go to the Holy Lands, and they'll have a tour and all of that, and they'll say this is where he was buried. I don't know that. that I don't know that. What I do know is this, 
There was a stone, and the stone was rolled in front, and therefore to open it, you had to roll it back the other way. Okay? All I'm saying is this. Do you remember what the Bible prophetically says about Jesus and his burial? It says that his grave was to be assigned among wicked men, but he would be with the rich man in his death. And it just so happened they had a secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, and he just happened to have a brand new grave nearby. So what I'm saying is this. Rich people were buried like this. Rich people had a, I don't know, it's kind of like if you go out there to uh, the cemetery and see old Buck Owens' grave. It ain't like everybody else. You know, we have a headstone on the ground. Walk by and see. Oh, no, they got a whole big marble granite-looking thing built over it like a house with guitars on the doors. Rich people were buried differently back then, too. They weren't just buried. They were buried in tombs such as that. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. I'm so thankful for what Jesus did for the sins of the world. And just maybe if we could always remember and keep in the forefront of our thinking the price that was paid for our sins, then just maybe we wouldn't live a life that's selfish and we wouldn't live a life that is all about the flesh just maybe we'll have a greater appreciation for what Jesus has done for us and be better in the future than we've ever been in days gone by. That's the effort. That's what I want. And I hope that's the message today. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.